Good morning. This is Journeys in Podcasting. I am Chris Davis, and today we have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Hugh Gash. Uh, Dr. Hugh Gash uh, first earned his doctorate at State University in Buffalo in 1974 with a thesis on moral judgment. Later, postdoctoral research at the University of Georgia with Charles Smock, where he met Ernst von Glasersfeld. I hope I said that correctly. Uh, who influenced his ideas on on radical constructivism. Uh, later, he worked at St. Patrick's College in Dublin until 2010, and he is an Emeritus Associate Professor in the School of Human Development in the Institute of Education in Dublin City University. Gash is also a member of the International Institute for Advanced Studies in Systems Research and Cybernetics. That was a mouthful, so that <laughs> I covered it up. Uh, Dr. Gant, how are you? Where are you? Uh... I'm, uh, thank you very much that you got the introduction uh, spot on. Uh, well done. Um, uh, some of the some of the strings of, of words there, particularly the Institute of Advanced Studies in Cybernetics and Informatics, is quite a mouthful. Um, but uh, at the moment, uh, I'm I'm retired. As as Chris mentioned, I've been retired for ten years now, um, and uh, I'm. At present in France, uh, my wife is French, so I spend half the year roughly in France and the other half of the year in Dublin. And uh, so I'm well, and, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you invite me to try and answer some questions on constructivism and see if there are more gaps or more closure. We'll see. Yeah, so I got to know your writings uh, in the journal Constructivist Foundations, and I first read Constructivism and the Mystical Experience, and then I read, to get more of a base of where you're coming from, your article on Constructing Constructivism. And so that's where I'll start uh, asking you a few questions, uh, and then we'll save some time to talk about the mystical experience uh, as we move on. So um, you write that as Dewey uh, put it, ideas are the result of mental operations. In the history of philosophy, uh, Berkeley's theory of knowledge is well known for asserting the impossibility of going beyond ideas. But there is this stickiness of the idea that where we perceive is there as part of a real world. I have to admit, I've only read a par- I had only read a paragraph into constructing constructivism and I was already experiencing a little cognitive static. I feel like I'm trying to apply blanket concepts of constructivism to explain very slippery terms like knowledge. And let me start with the phenomena of experience, which I believe is addressed by Dewey's transactionalism and Varela's inactivism, which I see is also a big topic in, in the journal that I'm referring to. Um, that what we've compiled in the head has a transaction with the affordances of the environment including the social interactions, or this is how I loosely understand it. So considering our broad cognitive architecture, how does radical constructivism account for things like tacit knowledge or thinking through Gibson's ecological psychology, babies with no prior knowledge of ledges and cliffs, they don't climb off of them. Um, What are your thoughts there? Yeah, and uh, when I read uh, your comment there about uh, Gibson and, and, and babies, I think my, my first answer is that the, the tacit knowledge is like the unconscious knowledge we have that we don't necessarily access when, when we meet something new. Um, so if we have a new, if a baby has a new experience, 
Um, uh, and let's let's take Gibson's walking off the edge of the, the visual cliff there. Um, th th there's something about that that alerts the baby to the danger. Uh, and the, in fact, the, my, my, my recollection of that research is that babies tend not to not to walk over the edge of the visual, not to crawl over the edge of the visual cliff. And so I suppose in a way, um, uh, babies will probably not be crawling uh, generally before six, seven months. Uh, some of them, the heavier babies, will actually be crawling even later than that. So at that stage, they have uh, learned an awful lot about eye-hand coordinations. Um, I have a, a granddaughter at the moment who's two months old, and she's she's looking at stuff, but I haven't actually seen her reaching out to touch stuff yet. Um, so in other words, the 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 reaching out to touch something that babies do will allow the child to understand what in her visual field uh, she is able to reach and touch and what in her visual field she will not be able to reach and touch um i have i still have a memory of of uh one of my daughters uh, many the, the 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 first one many years ago uh, uh in, in those days people smoked in the vicinity of of babies and I remember her reaching up at a, at a smoke ring somebody blew over her crib. And I can remember almost the startle when she realized that she could put her hand through the smoke ring. Mm. Uh, because this, this seemed to be an object, but at the same time, it was the first smoke ring she'd ever seen probably. So uh, she could put her hand through it. Getting back to your question about tacit knowledge, uh, experiences such as reaching out and touching something uh, uh, whether it is uh, like the edge of the crib um, or a face uh, or a smoke ring uh, will allow the baby to build up an, a, a concept of in the visual field, what can I, what can I touch, what can I see, uh, and, and how do those two relate. So relating that to Gibson, by the time a baby control, can crawl, uh, they will have built up a notion of... of uh, how far they can go and then what it looks like and, and then realize that, well, there's a gap there at the edge of the table or at the edge of wherever the visual cliff is. And uh, uh, the, the, they may even test it, but they're likely to know enough about it not to, not to crawl over it, uh, as long as they're paying attention. Uh, you know. Does so that, this, uh, this sounds very, I mean, having never read Piaget, but having read a lot about Piaget, this sounds very... <laughs> and that everything is based on a prior experience. Uh, and I know that is debated in, in, you know, in cognition circles that, you know, some say that we are born with some ecological knowledge of our environment, um, pointing to our ability to 360 rotate images in our mind. Uh, you don't need to walk around the table to actually know what the table looks like. You see one chair, you have the concept of chair, and you can spread it from chair to chair, if that makes sense. Or I know you've had some experience looking at like Lego Mindstorms. So you've seen what happens in a makerspace and the kind of rapid knowledge transfers that happen, the tinkering that happens that some of those things, I mean, this is more getting into your second article of the mysticism, <laughs> uh, but you know, some of them I just can't come up with an explanation for. Like how did kids know how to do that? Um, not to say that they were God given um, a knowledge of circuitry um, but there is something, well, 
I would question, is there something in that ecological psychology that, you know, we do have, we are born with some, I, I know that they tacit knowledge might not be the correct term for it, but ecological knowledge of our, of our spatial world. <laughs> That, 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 that's that, that's a fun topic and one that we could probably uh, in, engage in with with, with ma many glasses of beer. But let's <laughs> <laughs> well, let's bring it back to something a little more concrete. So um, yeah, oh sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no. Let me let, let, let me go at that one. There, there was a guy that um, around. Uh, I think it was this was fairly early, like uh, maybe when in, in the forties or so on. My memory for dates isn't isn't great on this, but there was a guy called Adelbert Ames. Uh -huh. And um, uh, he, he specialized, I think, in, in taking pictures from odd angles that made things look like they were impossible. And w one of the things that I used to um, uh, uh, try and engage the students uh, in, in terms of what they understood about, about constructivism uh, was that when, when, you, when, when you actually walk down a corridor, uh, uh, the, the and this is like a long corridor, the, the lines, uh, one's phenomenal experience is of the, the, the lines actually move, but your, your brain filters that out so that, it, that they don't move. And so unless you're under the influence of something that is, is dangerous to, to drive with, uh, uh, your head can keep all those um, peripheral motions steady so that the environment appears steady. Whereas if you drink too much, for example, uh, you can actually get to a point uh, where uh, you, you lose that and then, then you fall over because you can't control it anymore. Now, so in other words, the, the suggestion you made that you might be able to walk around a table and you might have a, an innate idea of how those changes could be coordinated, uh, I, 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 I would, my own feeling is that that's not the case. My own feeling is that you actually build up a concept of, of how the table looks like from different angles. Um, and uh, one can be occasionally surprised by that. And there are lots of examples of visual illusions. And actually, um, th that was one of the things that I used to use to try to engage students to understand what it meant to be a constructivist. When, when you show them certain sorts of visual illusions, they suddenly realize how much your head puts into controlling what you see so that what you see is stable, even though when you move, it, it all changes. Like if you move back from your table and, and, uh, and, and move your body around, uh, all the angles uh, between the floor and the table legs, for example, move. Uh, but you, you don't notice that because that's not important. Um, so in other words, all those uh, constructions are built up uh, in, in ways that, um, that allow us to perceive the world as stable. Yeah. I hope I'm making sense there. No, yeah. totally. That, yeah. that to yeah. me, I guess I know that more. And I think it's also a Gibson concept of this idea of our illusion of precision that our, we have our foveal vision uh, and then we have our peripheral vision and then there's something else in between. But basically our eyes kind of saccade from thing to thing, taking in these little points. But basically we're always living in a kind, again, this is beer talk. Um, we're mm -hmm. always living in um, this permanent illusion that you're, basically, you know, creating in your head an illusion of what you're taking in from the world, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah. kind of combining it with your prior experiences, uh, taking in your Terminator dots, and then reconstructing it in your head. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's, that's roughly what I'm saying, I think. I think so, yeah. I yeah. think so. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I... Um, 
the term radical constructivism is is new to me as is Glassesfeld, and so this is an area that I'm you know dying to know kind of the other perspective of this because I only know it from more of this embodied cognition perspective or okay. grounded cognition, um, where you know your your mind is basically creating simulations all the time, uh, and so yes, yes. part of kind of how we recreate the world around us is that we take information and then your mind creates a simulation for it. Um, I'll bring that back when we talk about multimodality. Let me move on to this idea of schema. Um, you wrote that learning is limited or constrained in two ways. That is by two sorts of conservations, intra-individual consistency and inter-individual consistency. Mm -hmm. I wanna make sure I kind of understand this. As you break down the five ideas that tend to frame the talk of constructivism, um, and we might differentiate these two worlds at some point too, the practice of constructivism and the talk of constructivism. I found myself nodding a check for the first four, and then I wanted to ask about this fifth one. And the closest I come to it is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mary McVie's uh, schemata theory revisited, but I, I think you're familiar with schema theory. Um, she explains that the ongoing cycle of how schemata is formed between private, public, individual, and social spaces that were constantly in this circle, um, and it's in constant motion between space and time. So radical constructivism seems to support the same, a kind of pattern recognition and perhaps amaliability of self that we're constantly redefining both from our, our inner selves and from the perspective we get from others. Um, I'd kind of like to address this, uh, the, what I feel like is missing in constructivism, maybe something in the defining of self, but for now, um, what might this mean for, as we design learning experience for kids, um, how would you suggest that we balance these two things between the intra and the inter? Yeah, um, I think the radical constructivism uh, very much prioritizes the importance of the, the individuals first making sense of, of what they experience. So uh, the, the, the social is, 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 is fine. The social has a place to play, uh, an important play, an important thing, uh, way to, uh, an important influence. But, but what, what's really central is, is how the individual construes the things themselves first. Um, and I talked in, in uh, I think, the article on constructing constructivism on, on three, three different levels of understanding constructivism. Uh, the first one was where the individual interacts with the environment and, and makes sense of the environment. Uh, uh, but the, the, the second one was realizing that the environment itself uh, cannot be, we, we cannot each consider that we have an experience of the same thing. Uh, we, we may be noticing different features of it individually. Um, and certainly when children are in school, uh, they will be understanding uh, things uh, uh, quite differently from the way the teacher does. I mean, I'm, I'm remembering a, a, an incident from um, uh, a school class in which we were reading a textbook about Napoleon's um, uh, invasion into Russia. And there was a metaphor in the, in the story about uh, how um, Moscow had uh, the, an important general on their side, the, the General Winter. In other words, uh, Poor old Napoleon's troops got completely uh, overcome by by the by the weather, and and they 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 got frostbite and they died in in in, in thousands. 
but the, the, the metaphor, uh, General Winter, there was, there was one boy in the class who kept on coming back and, and, and trying to figure out who this person was. Um, and, and, and most of us got it, and we were sort of egging him on because the teacher was desperately trying to explain that this was a metaphor and that there wasn't actually a general called General Winter, but it was just that the environmental conditions were such that Napoleon was, was against a stiff obstacle. So um, uh, I, I, I suppose I'm belaboring the point how the, it's the individual's interpretation that's absolutely crucial at the beginning. But of course, uh, the, um, the, 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 the group psychology, the, 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 the sorts of things that, that other people say, um, all, that, um, all that is really important. But it's, it's how the individual perceives that. Um, and and just, just to go on a little bit, because in, in some of your other uh, comments that you made um, uh, in, 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 in what you sent me before, the, before this podcast, you, you mentioned children with special needs. Um, uh, w w one, one of the things that I was, was, um, was interested in, in looking at was how, how children actually um, uh, began to understand uh, what the implications of, of playing with a child with, with, um, with Down syndrome uh, was. And th there were, there were, it, was, it was very clear to me that there were children who were very experienced uh, I, and, and uh, new children with Down syndrome had been in class with them. And so if you ask those children, what do they think of, of, uh, of children with Down syndrome? They, they really thought of them as classmates. Whereas children who had been in, in segregated schools where, they were, uh, where the children with Down syndrome had been put in different classrooms and had no experience of them, they, they were often a, a bit uncomfortable and a bit afraid of them because they were different. And those, those children tended to uh, react negatively to children who reacted positively to children with Down syndrome. And there, there, were, there was a point at which children realized that um, uh, it, 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 might, it might be a problem uh, for them to uh, invite a children with Down syndrome uh, to, their, to their party because there would be other children who would, who would uh, think that this was strange or would be uncomfortable. So they were they were they were learning things about the social world that um, uh, made them realize that some children thought other children were different and that that was bad. I'm not sure if I've made that point clearly. I hope I have. Very much uh, so. Uh, in fact, that's I think the basis of the inclusion model is that the kids in the class have more to learn from the child with learning needs, with special learning needs, um, and in the environments that I've worked in it creates an incredible sort of pervasive empathy in the classroom. That exactly. Particularly when you have a more extreme case, uh, it, it means that everyone is constantly kind of leaning in to help or to, you know, find out what they can do to make this an easier experience. And then to kind of backtrack a little bit, very interesting what you were saying, because I feel like the waves of constructivism have come back. Uh, you know, I, I think it hit really you know, hard in the 60s and 70s with the progressive education movement. And then mm -hmm. like, if you look at, you know, Project Zero out of Harvard, they have the, the thinking moves. And then one of the mm -hmm. most popular thinking moves is see, think, wonder. And so you just mm -hmm. take a learning artifact or a piece of text or whatever you're observing and you mm -hmm. just observe 
of it silently for a minute. Mm-hmm. And then everybody just talks about the physical characteristics of the thing, the thing that everyone's going to more or less agree about. You know, you might say that color is more of a ph- phenomenological experience, but everyone's pretty much going to see blue and everyone's pretty much going to see the same details. And then you move into the interpretations and then mm-hmm. the interpretations, people will start to, you know, vary in how they interpret what they see very much based on what you're saying on the building up of their prior experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then finally you go into wonder and that's just where you let inquiry run wild. Um, and so this is kind of based on those slow moves from, you know, my experience, my observation, and then my interpretation, but then I have the conflict of the social group of mm-hmm. other people who don't have the same interpretation that I have. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe another one would be design thinking. I, I'm sure you've heard of this, uh, which has entered schools quite a bit now. And one of their moves is uh, something called, uh, it's an empathy exercise of observing. It could be observing a character in text, or it could be observing a photo or something in real life. Um, mm-hmm. It's an ethnographic exercise of what are they saying? What are they doing? Very observable things that we'll probably all agree on. But then you go into what are they thinking and what are they feeling, where you have to really put in your your sense of empathy uh, for the character or whatever you're observing. And then that creates, again, that point of contention that others in the social group may have very different interpretations there. And so that's very much like forcing that critical dialogue that, you know, Paulo Freire, the learning happens around these points of contention. Mm. Yeah, because uh, uh, earlier on, I think I possibly made reference to it in the Constructing Constructivism article. I did some work on, on children's role taking. And when children are around five or six, they have very great difficulty realizing that other children will see something uh, differently from what they see. And and uh, there were little role taking tasks uh, that that uh, that I used to to look at that, uh, and uh, so, some children just had extreme difficulty realizing that if they knew the whole story, and somebody else only knew a bit of the story, they had great difficulty realizing that the other person did not know the whole story. And yeah. and uh, you know yeah and the other example the the other thing that related to what you were saying a minute or two ago was an experience where um, uh, young young teenagers uh, were playing uh, table football you know does does that make sense to you you know the they they play it in bars with with uh, you have um, um, characters on on sticks and it's uh, you 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 flick a, you flick a, a football up and down the table. Does yeah. that make sense to you? Um, I remember it. I don't know if the kids still play it, but I, I certainly remember it. Okay. Well, the, 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 the kids with Down syndrome, some of them were absolutely terrific at this. And, and when, when the kids who had, didn't know kids with Down syndrome played this game with them, they realized that you know, there were actually skills that these guys were you know, far superior to them on. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it really opened the, It made them wonder about the prejudices they had about how Down syndrome kids couldn't do stuff. Yeah, I, I have that. Well, let me, let me read this next question because I think it opens straight up into that exact theme mm. of what happens when you put new tools and the tool could be the game mm. or, or new mm. tool like an iPad or whatever you put in your learning environment, what that does to your special needs kids and what it does to kind of distribute uh, leadership and, um, you know, the, the distributed work or whatever. Um, mm. So you quoted 
again, Volwill, I believe is his name. Volwill. Yes, Volwill, yeah, I think. I, think, uh, Volville, I, I met the man actually once. <laughs> you didn't know. And I was dying to ask you, but I didn't know if, if it was inappropriate because uh, Piaget would have crossed your academic path, I believe. Uh, did you ever have a chance to? So as I, I actually, I, I went on 1976, I went to an international uh, conference of psychologists in Paris and I, I heard the man, you know, I was in a, a, a huge, big amphitheater uh, in one of the universities in Paris and, and uh, he, he was there and he looked like the photographs and uh, I can't remember anything he said, but I, I was sort of, <laughs> I felt privileged that he was there and that I was there and that I saw him, you know. It's <laughs> yeah. amazing. So, there's another detail I have to tell. There was a famous guy who was a Piaget interpreter called Hans Firth. And Hans Firth um, uh, looked a bit like uh, uh, Conrad Lorenz. You know, he was sort of uh, Germanic looking and he had lots of white hair and glasses. And he was in his mid 70s. And uh, Hans Firth was going to show us a, a, a film, uh, a 16 millimeter film in those days of, of Piaget. And we were the, the room was packed, and he started this thing off, and somebody had somebody had wound the thing on uh, backwards, so, so we saw Piaget going back backwards up the steps into an airplane, at the, you know, and I I was just dead with embarrassment for the guy because I like I was in my tw you know just in my tw still in my twenties at this stage. <laughs> and Hans Firth wasn't in the least bothered, you know. He just waited until they rewound re it and, and so on. But so no, in such a different era of academia, I mean, that era, yeah. you know, people just carried this kind of lore about them and no one would question what they would say. And, you know, it, it, everyone just kind of followed them like, you know, almost like a religious figure or whatever. That's right. Yeah, they were. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, I can remember Ernst von Glasersfeld saying of, of Piaget that he'd been at a conference and somebody tackled Piaget and suggested that he was, you know, wrong about something. And I can remember Ernst saying that, well, you know, when Piaget, Piaget was, had written a book a year for God knows how many years at this stage. And, and Piaget said, well, he said, there are ways of doing it, but the, the, this person got the cultural rules wrong, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it's changed a bit since then, but I think in some circles, it still is a, a little bit like that. I've been to some, conferences at MIT and some people are still just kind of revered. And I think Harvard has a, a bit of a culture of that as well. Um, yeah. I so, mean, I, you, you need to treat these guys with a certain amount of respect, you know, but there, there are different cultural rules. Australians are particularly poor at them, for example, <laughs> <laughs> in my experience. <laughs> but you, they have quite a bit of constructivist thought that also comes out of there. Oh, they do. There's a guy called Taylor and a, and a colleague of his, and they they did a, they did a nice questionnaire uh, which I've used actually, uh, in which they, you you gave questions to teachers to basically see how constructivist they were, uh -huh. um, and we found that very useful as as a tool to look at to help teachers look at themselves, um, yeah. and 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 found differences between teachers in different countries. You know, in terms of like the. To, to what extent uh, they they tolerated students asking them questions and stuff like that, you know, and 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 well, who yeah, took control of the classroom? Yeah. If you ask, everyone would claim to be a constructivist. Yes. Yes. But then you go and observe. You're like, wait, where where is this construction this construction going on? 
that, that's a very good point, though. That's an extremely good point because I think the way in which people interpret their their own how they you, you, we all have to make sense of what it is we're saying. You know, you 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 you, you can't just sort of shoot off stuff that you're not sure about. So. Well, I think- article provides, I mean, I don't know if these are the same questions you were asking on your checklist, but the concepts I'm pulling out of your article, you know, environment and experience, uh, mm-hmm. circularity, uh, mm-hmm. these two are great concepts for processing, at least what I think constructivism is, because I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I have, I, I have a, you know, that well-defined. To me, these are things that always need a revisit. And I wish that, you know, this was more in the culture of teaching is that we actually worked on our theory of learning a bit more, not, mm-hmm. not, not much on method. I mean, I think everyone is very well trained in method, but when you scratch the surface, can they really explain, you know, why we do this and how else could we do it? That's where the discussion starts to break down. I mean, there are great programs now that I would call constructivist, and maybe you're familiar with them, the IB program, uh, which many international schools subscribe to, the International Baccalaureate. Um, They have the PYP in elementary, which is very project-based. Out of um, Columbia, there's the Teachers College Reading and Writing program, which is based on the concept of the writer's workshop. And so Mm -hmm. these are very constructivist models. And then everything that comes out of MIT and Harvard Uh, And I would say Stanford is also a great contributor. And, and, you know, many other, I would say most teacher colleges are a constructivist model, but those particular schools are pumping out very scalable programs. Mm. The problem with Mm. that, I think, is that then you fall into this kind of edu-corporate culture where you're just learning a series of methods. Mm. Teachers may not know the theory and the philosophies behind that. Mm. At least that's my impression up to this point. So let's delve into this idea of environment and experience where you quote Volville, uh, stress the importance of recognizing and taking steps to correct the loose usage of the words environment and experience by psychologists. We briefly mentioned this above, but for teachers, this is huge. Reggio Emilia differentiates two kinds of tools in a learning space, tools of construction and tools that have some, that are something like Froebel's gifts hanging inquiries, artifacts ready to unlock knowledge. Now that teachers are really in, uh, teachers are really in a pickle when they move into these kind of digital spaces during this COVID period, um, because the rules have all changed and they don't have this concept of environment and experience and tools within those spaces, then it becomes kind of a critical problem. So what might radical constructivism differentiating between environment and experience offer teachers as they both reflect on their physical classrooms and what they fill it with, what activities will take place, and then moving to digital spaces where the bandwidths have all shifted. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm not sure about the bandwidths. What, what do you mean by the bandwidths there? I was... More like, I guess, our mo- you're cybernetic, so I hope I can communicate this, um, <laughs> like our, our bandwidths of communication. And so within a classroom, you have all of these proxemics bandwidths, you know, you have the actual space itself that's communicating. You have your facial expression, eye contact, which is very hard to replicate online. Um, mm-hmm. All your intonation of voice, you know, even the microphones we speak through are not going to kind of communicate the same thing as when you're in that physical space. Mm-hmm. And not to mention the kind of the social, um, I think the social thing, you know, going from digital learning to physical learning. Uh, there's a lot that happens in a classroom, I feel, that is um, 
socially driven. You know, kids will fall mm. in certain activities because all their peers are doing it. Or if they fall out of the activity, they simply have to look over and, you know, catch what's going on. Or, you know, they can whisper to their friend and there's a quick social construction there. Um, mm. Mm. So that's what I mean about like when we move from, you know, physical to digital, now our ability to use tools is very different and our methods may change as well. You know, you can't do a lot of, I mean, you can do direct instruction to a whole class, but it's going to be much less effective than when you're in the classroom. Um, yes. You can do like once around the classroom and just checking in, quick eye contact with a student, a smile, you know, whatever those uh, informal forms of communication are. Right, right. Um, I, I, uh, I mean, the the trap, uh, as 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 I understand you to say it, is that when when programs are created uh, for teachers by institutions, uh, no matter how good the institutions are, uh, it's it's the, the trap for the teacher is that they will uh, end up trying to teach specific content to children that they will then assess using some sort of metric that they can see how much the children have learned of what they were trying to teach them. And uh, I mean, to the extent that that mirrors what happened with behavioral objectives all those years ago, uh, that, that, that's, that's precisely what radical constructivism is trying to get away from, uh, because it, it assumes that knowledge is, is, uh, uh, is something that the, the adult knows and that the child doesn't know. And so th that was that was the, the the notion of the environment that that Vulville was 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 trying to get away from, or that I was using him to try and get away from. Um, uh, the, the 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 key thing in this is is for the the teacher to be really sensitive to what the children um, the children understand, and uh, part of this actually uh, was that. That phrase you picked up in in Therese Dooley's thesis uh, in in the same article, constructing constructivism, was it was it affordances or what was it? I'm trying to remember what it was now. Do you remember? I mean, I use affordances more from Gibson. Uh, that if if a tool if a tool enters your environment, your belief system, your experiences will affect your goals, yeah, uh, your capabilities. No, so, it, no. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. Sorry, it wasn't affordances. It was uh, Therese Dooley used um, a concept where she was trying to get children to feel confident about talking about stuff that they were uncertain about, um, and 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 not to feel that they can only talk when they were uh, sure about something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, like the the idea that it's okay to have an incomplete thought and yes. say that you don't always yeah. have to have a concise yeah. answer. Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 this the, if 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 teachers are are can can be encouraged to to help children deal with uncertainties they have, I mean I, I used to I, I never taught children directly myself, but for thirty five years I went into classrooms and supervised student teachers, so I was I was looking at slightly different stuff than my colleagues who I were always on the same team with me who had been teachers. Uh, but um, uh, so, w w w what what we're trying to do is to help teachers uh, help children uh, uh, not just answer questions when they know the right answer, but but work with with uncertain answers uh, that um, and maybe it depends on the sort of question that the teacher is asking. 
or maybe it depends on the moment that the teacher intervenes with the child. Um, because so often uh, student teachers would ask questions that had definite right answers and then they could move on to the next definite right answer later on. And there wouldn't be an embarrassing silence while some students struggled with something. But if, if children and, and teachers can work together so that the, the, the children can be comfortable in dealing with uncertainties and the teachers can be um, uh, sensitive enough to see where the children are coming from so that they can maybe uh, prompt them a little bit or ask them a different question so that the child's focus can change and that they can have maybe that insight that they need to get an idea that is more complete and more viable. Yeah, no, I definitely hear you. I, I did some volunteer teaching in in Poland in 1991 to date myself a little bit. Yes, and uh-huh. it was a very communist school system. So you know the, the model was, and maybe you had something similar in upbringing. I have no idea, but um, you know the, the professor would enter the room or the teacher would enter the room, and everyone would stand up, and then mm-hmm. they would walk to your desk, and then you kind of nod to them, and they all sit down, mm-hmm. and then the whole class was basically calling a number, no names, number 15. Yeah. Number 15 stands up, they fire a question at him, yeah. 15 answers, they get a check right or check wrong, mm-hmm. sits back. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the extent of the, you know, social construction yeah. of the classroom. Yeah. Now, yeah. that same thing, you know, Poland has a pretty long history of producing really good academics in certain fields and working with those kids after school and, um, you know, it was a small town that I was working in. So you end up yeah. running across their study sessions, whatever pure constructivism. I yes. mean, yeah. like you're talking about of like, everyone just would say something and then they would all start building. So the constructivism mm-hmm. was there in the culture. It just right. wasn't in the culture of the school. Wasn't in the classroom, yeah. The way people discussed everything. So That's... that was very interesting. Um, sorry, tangent. Let me go to this, because uh, I'm being mindful of time and I, I'm gonna ask you one more question about constructive constructivism. And then I would like to move on to a couple of questions about mysticism. So you introduced this other concept of circularity and some of these concepts, I'm not sure if I'm interpreting them correctly, because again, I'm using my prior knowledge, but Mm -hmm. you may be talking about something a bit different. So you write that circularity is illustrated by piano players uh, playing a short piece of music over and over again in a repetitive or circular way so that eventually the player plays it flawlessly in exactly the way he wants. I play classical guitar. And so I'm no stranger to this idea of playing the same piece. I have pieces Mm -hmm. that I play. 25 years mm-hmm. and I can still find in almost every playing, I still find something new in the music. Mm-hmm. Um, you just kind of go deeper and deeper and you keep on constructing in that. Um, so I use this also in the classroom and I might use, uh, cite the example of like a student monologue. So by the end of the week, the student must, it's not, uh, the student will produce a monologue that they, that they construct out of the text, you know, an emotional speech that a character gives. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they would practice that every day. And after each interaction, they, they would do it in front of uh, peers and get feedback or from mm-hmm. the teacher. And then they would also do different kinds of reflections about the text using that, mm-hmm. that, that parse text. Um, and then by the end of the week, this became an event and I didn't mandate anybody memorize it, but they all memorized it. And then they would put in facial affect and body gesture into this performance. And so this is kind of how I view this iterative cycle of, of circularity, which, as I mentioned before, I find in different educational systems now, these marketable things like 
project-based learning or international baccalaureate or writer's mm -hmm. workshop. Um, and I kind of loosely understand circularity as boring into the same topic, the repetitive cycles, but you go through a period of like broadening and deepening, broadening and deepening mm -hmm. to get feedback. And so I'm not sure if that's what you mean by putting in is circularity, basically like iterations of a learning product like that. Yes, yes, it is. And I think, I think it was uh, uh, my difficulty and, and I would talk about circularity because Piaget talked about it and my students would look blank. So I would try and find something that I felt that they could relate to. But in fact, you've described it, you know, better, better than I did. <laughs> uh, you know, but I, my, often, often my students would be, would be quite musical. So the idea of, of, of playing, playing a complicated chord over and over again so that they could do it uh, automatically, it's, the circularity would be repeated iter iterations of something so that you could eventually, so you'd eventually internalized it and you didn't have to think about it anymore. You just did it. Uh, and... Uh, but you see, if you come, uh, the students that I was teaching had mostly come through a system that prioritized memorizing, uh, you know, maybe, maybe less now, but certainly, uh, you know, having, uh, you know, I started uh, uh, teaching these student teachers in, um, uh, in, in the mid 70s. So, you know, uh, but, and in, that, in those days, the, the, the exam to get into uh, the College of Education for the for the students was one that heavily emphasized memory, and the students all did very well in that. So they were they were in the tops of memory. So this notion of circularity and learning was not something that they were highly attuned to. Uh, so I used the piano example because I figured it would be readily accessible. But it's the same thing. Watching if you watch a baby uh, reaching out and and touching a face. Uh, or reaching out and touching the the the, the side of the the crib uh, repeatedly, um, uh, they will reach out and touch over and over again. Then it becomes automatic, and then then they they've learned about distance and they've learned about how when what something looks like and wh whether they can reach it or not, and so on. Well, this is this is part of the Piaget Piaget model in that our yeah. first academic experiences are embodied. Mm -hmm. That mm. the body is always kind of present and learning. And I know you mentioned that as yeah. well in the article as well, is this importance of the so social interaction, but also the importance that learning is always embodied, uh, that it, yes. we're all yeah. experiencing from the point of, of the body, so to speak. Um, right. Yeah. Well, let's talk um, constructivism and the gap, because these mm. concepts were, were really interesting to, to tool around with as well. Uh, so in, in this article, Constructivism and the Mystical Experience, you wrote, in this epistemological framework, gaps necessary arise in understanding when existing concepts do not fit experience. Forms of wonder may arise from experience of such gaps, leading to novel insights and more viable reality con constructions. Finally, I suggest that there are grounds for considering such epiphanies sacred, and in addition, as in certain types of mystical experience, they may be related to personal development through recognizing harmony between experiences over time. I, I was elated to read this article. I, we so seldom get a chance to think about how epiphany is such a part of learning. For example, for me, the school day is full and I'm always scheduled. I, I could barely schedule an hour just to put in reflection on student work. And, you know, I'd limit this to five students a day so I could kind of go deep and not just be in this constant treadmill of all these mini tasks. Mm -hmm. 
But the real epiphanies would come by staying after school for an hour or two of keeping student work out, keeping content out, but doing something kind of menial, like arranging papers or you know, fixing desks up and stuff. Um, and it was in these moments of this kind of downtime of not doing anything where your cognitive load is, is really full that the great ideations would happen. And I don't think I could ever explain this to other teachers, how tapping into the hallucinogenic mind was where my best teaching ideas came from. Um, how do you communicate this to educators? Or is this a later, is this a later idea of the mysticism? And you're talking about your own epiphanies, your own personal ones. Yeah. Yes, yes, right, right, right. Well, well actually, the importance that like the space for epiphany um, has to be there. And I think what I'm trying to get at is that your day is so full of many tasks and education is mm. becoming such a task-oriented thing. I mean, mm. the younger mm. generations are so task-oriented but they don't know what to do when someone's sort of not not telling them what to do. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I think the, the the most the most intriguing experience I had in that was again it was with Lego Mindstorms. One of my one of my colleagues was doing her her PhD on the use of Lego Mindstorms uh, with teachers in in Irish primary classrooms, and and Seymour Papert was the the the, the major uh, supervisor. I think she might have been his last his last PhD student. I, I was the unofficial Irish supervisor who did a lot of the slog work, but the, uh, Papert was was there and and came to the the viva and so on. But as part of that, uh, she she got uh, all the teachers who were in the project together, uh, together with some of us uh, college staff, and we we had to do a, a little exercise. She gave we got the little Lego Mindstorms. Uh, uh, little uh, baby computer and the, the task was to uh, develop a little um, engine that would move as slowly as possible so we had to figure out how gearing worked on the little um, the little thing that we could make with the, uh, uh, with the with the wheels and gears we were given and then attach the uh, Lego Mindstorms computer to it and it, it was one of these things where none of us had any experience of this before. We we didn't know gearing. We didn't. We did. We knew very little about what we were supposed to be doing. And uh, it was it was uh, a very powerful experience for all the all of us involved, uh, l largely because we we didn't know where to go. I mean, there was just huge gap, you know. Whereas usually when teachers are teaching, they know they pretty well know it. And if a kid doesn't know something, then they they probably know how to point him in the right direction. But this was absolutely new. And <laughs> there was one lovely story of a, 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 a nice teacher who <laughs> I remember well. And uh, in the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning, she woke up and she'd grabbed the, the bedside lamp and she was shaking it around the place. And her husband was saying, what are you doing? <laughs> and she said, I'm trying to solve this problem about the gears in my dreams. <laughs> but it was <laughs> it was just like the gap was so big that that it was sort of invading her space uh, in in her dream world, you know. Um, and uh, the, we we in talking about this with the the teacher who's, who's who's doing the thesis, you know, we we felt that the, the key thing was that teachers mostly, you know, they they pretty well know what they're doing, uh, and so to be given an experience like this in which they really did not know what they were doing was was you know sort of quite emancipatory yeah and you know i i have attended uh many of these kind of hacker spaces and maker spaces workshops and i've spent mm. the last 
um, for summers going to something called ITP camp at NYU. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Gary Stagger offers the Constructing Modern Knowledge, uh, like a week-long workshop where you just kind of get together with educators, make mm. teams, make design plans, and just make stuff. Yes, um, yes. And it, it is very exhilarating because you really get a feel. I think you have to do it yourself to understand what it really is. That yeah. You're entering a learning environment where the rules of normal learning are not necessarily applying. That right. It's going to be a distributed mind. It's going to be very like project-based where we're all working towards this thing. And if you talk to these top you know, maker educators, James Deck in New York, for example, um, you know, they're all working in these rigid systems. They still have to give grades. They still have to work with standards mm -hmm. and stuff, mm -hmm. but they're not concerned with that. All they're concerned about, about is students do wicked cool projects. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the whole thing. High Tech High operates on the same system and all of the offshoots now that have come out of that. And so this is a very hard thing to explain to educators that have not been through that team building and maker experience. And I'm not like a super maker or anything. My skill set is more in design and ideation kind of stuff. Um, but to get on these teams and work for, you know, two to three weeks on a project, it is really fun. And it just all encompassing, like any metrics that you had set aside for yourself completely dissolve. And it just becomes this mad sprint to, you know, finish this, this project. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I would think that this kind of world that, that Pappard and others have, you know, brought at least explained to us how all of this works is something that we can bring into other things. Like I've tried, tried my best to bring that into writer's workshop and yes. it's hard because we're still, you know, we're still sucked into this individualized um, assessment process, but I kind of worked around it by taking the assessment a week before we actually finished the writing projects. And then mm -hmm. we just spent a week in writing lab and, you know, we'd still do kind of like teaching moments and things, but then we just open it up and give the kids some basic, basic method on how to work on teams. And mm -hmm. then they, they work together to produce everyone's writing has to go through a collective process. Mm -hmm. um, it was pretty magical, even that, and that's not like a super maker experience, but just mm -hmm. opening it up to a cooperative product uh, yes. changes all the rules. Um, yes, yes. Well, one of the teachers that I referred to in the article Constructing Constructivism, uh, Ethna Kennedy, did something like that with reading in a school that was in a very had problematic area. Um, and uh, she involved the teachers and the parents and so on. And they, 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 they changed the kids' reading habits dramatically. Uh, huh. and, and also change the scores. But the, it seemed to me that what I was getting from it was what they really changed was the, the way in which the parents and the teachers got involved with the children so that the children uh, were, were very much supported in their learning activities of reading, you know, and in their reading activities. And then their, their scores went up as a result. So I think that relates to this um, idea of the mysticism because you, you mentioned several times, and I'm not going to quote it because I, I want to get to just the concepts. Um, mm. You mentioned this idea of working in community, and you know yeah. this is a very most religions have these rites where you. you mm. know, I know C.S. Lewis writes about like groups in prayer and goes on about like mm. how the strongest mm. form of spirituality is found in the midst of others. Um, you mentioned how Dewey writes about uh, the quote. That's a beautiful quote you pulled out about how he doesn't find 
spirituality by going to religion. He finds religion by going to experiences mm. and experiences mm. from that he extracts his sense of spirituality of things. So this idea of community is very strong because in all of these um, mystical experiences, there is this removal of the self, so to speak. Um, yes. And yes. You, yes. you engage in activity where you are doing something that is beyond you. And so these mm. maker activities, I think, are really tapping into that because all of a sudden, you know, this is not my individual project. It's, you know, it's this collective thing and we're making it right here in physical space. I just interrupt you because you, you said something there that almost creates an epiphany for me. But I hadn't thought about it that way before. But this removal of self. Um, and and uh, I, I think von Glasersfeld said something like that uh, too, that there, there, there are moments in life when, when you, you, you utterly forget yourself. Um, in fact, he, he talked about that in his book, Partial Memories. He talked about that uh, in, in a very personal way, uh, in terms of, of, of making love. Um, but uh, uh, there are other people who've talked about the same thing. I, I used to use a, a book uh, edited by Jerome Bruner and Alison Jolly and someone else on play. And in, in that, there were uh, descriptions of, um, of, of dangerous games uh, and, and, and also extreme betting games. And there, too, self is completely forgotten in the intensity of the moment and what you alluded to there was how self is is also uh, completely forgotten in in the the communal cooperation of of a project uh, i mean it may, it may be partly there because people have to take initiatives at certain times uh, but but there's also a lot of usually a lot of negotiation and 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 in a sense the, the, the self becomes immersed in the communal activity, and mm -hmm. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that uh, that much, but but th that also relates to what Mary Catherine Bateson says about uh, I think also about um, uh, the, the 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 mystery of the other and the inherent possibilities uh, with the other, uh, and talks about the sacredness of that that experience um, of of the other as as somebody with with uh, huge possibilities or the relationship as something with, with infinite possibilities. And because nothing is fixed, uh, uh, one is into this, one is into this gap of wonder and what might be and so on. So yeah, um, getting, getting close to getting close to a mystical experience there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to comment that how that is inherent in some cultures. So if you look at cultures that have, uh, I call them polychronic mm. cultures, that comes mm. from like proxemics theory, but you know polyrhythm. So mm. polyrhythm is a very hard thing for Westerners to understand because we might look at it like a the music of Steve Reich, mm -hmm. but Reich is even though it is polyrhythm, it's missing the critical element of the hallucination. And so if you look at, like, you know, the easiest thing we would have to grasp on there is a jazz player improvising. Yeah. So yeah. You know, the other players set up this, basically this is, I, I see it as coming straight out of West African rhythmic tradition mm -hmm. where all the drums will play their part into a very integrated complex pattern. But the real objective of this is to create the improv. So, you know, the improviser will step forward and sometimes there's multiple improvisers, 
but basically will start dancing or playing on top of the rhythm. And so that improvising is what they're trying to provoke. All the polyrhythmic structure is interesting. It's very, you know, it's very cool to kind of dissect all of that part. Mm-hmm. But the real objective is the hallucination. Yes. To yeah, activate yes. an hallucinatory mind. Or, mm-hmm. you know, it goes into more spiritual levels. If you look at like Orishas and Cuban uh, Yoruba culture, I mean, there they're really, um, I mean, they have it so programmed that they play a certain rhythm and they're waiting for a certain god to come down possess one member and this whole ceremony takes place around that i have not experienced that that part of it but i have experienced the um you know the drumming part of it where Mm -hmm. uh, you know the goal is to sink so into this rhythm that you can hear everybody's part but then basically what your mind starts to do is start throwing out rhythms on top of it and then if you're an adept player then you can, you know, start playing those pieces. Or uh, in the dancing part, the dancer steps forward, the drummer steps forward, and they have a, a dialogue. Mm-hmm. So that's very live here in Colombia, where I'm living now, uh, on the Caribbean coast. This tradition is is very intact. Um, mm-hmm. so these mm-hmm. are things that are kind of, I guess, matter of fact in some cultures. But I think for Westerners, it, it takes a little work to get there. Um, or we have to kind of intellectualize it first before we can kind of understand what the concept is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, try to start to experience it. But I, I do believe that removal of self is a huge thing. And I'm sure you've heard of, you know, flow theory. Yes, I, yes. I will not try to pronounce his name, but uh, you know the book that in the research that I'm talking about is also very based on that loss of sense of time, loss of sense mm. of self, feeling like you're part of something greater than the self. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that that's really like getting to the, the, I talked a little bit about no mind, or I tried to talk about no mind. Um, and and uh, um, some of the German mystics, there was one of them, Mr. Meister Erkart, uh, said that if you can, if you're talking about God, you you you've missed the point. You're not actually talking about God, so you have to you have to sort of suspend concepts. Um, and it seemed to me that that uh, this notion uh, in the mystical notion that you've been describing well in terms of of the the, the, the those musical traditions. Um, uh, is is very like uh, creating creating a place where the, the mind basically uh, goes quiet, and that's that's very much part of many mystical traditions. Um, and and at those moments, then uh, uh, ideas may just appear, or you may be able to hold on to the no mind for longer. Uh, but but the, the, the new ideas may pop into consciousness. Um, I mean, I- it's a hard thing to to bring that into school just because the schedules are so full um the airwaves are full you know like Mm. someone's always talking and the teacher's voice is filling up the airwaves that Mm. like where i think that has to happen is there has to be space for these gaps to develop that you're talking about um you know i have that thinking routine which is I think that what they're attempting to do is to try to kickstart that improvisational mind so that by the time you get to the inquiry, the wonder part, mm-hmm. you know, your mind is already full of all these things and, and the wonder just comes flowing out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it could be in that space of these kind of immersion activities to build wonder and inquiry around things. But, uh, you know, I think it has to be other places too. Like I think kids really should not feel like, we're going to study this topic. And at the end of the unit, you're going to have all the answers you need to have. It should mm-hmm. almost be like, and now you're really going to wonder. 
<laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to I have to confess that when I wrote the the paper on constructivism and mysticism, I wasn't trying to suggest that this uh, should be part of the curriculum. What I was rather trying to do was to suggest that there were there were moments in learning when one's existing concepts just didn't work, and uh, uh, w w one was best. Uh, at that point, it was probably good to let the mind go quiet and just see what happened and see where the ideas could come in, uh, rather than you know, <laughs> struggling and struggling and struggling. You know, uh, because uh, often uh, my own experience is that if I have a particular problem uh, that I haven't got the answer for, uh, I'll, I'll wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I'll have a new idea that might work. You know, um, and um, uh, where that idea comes from is entirely mysterious. It's absolutely out of my control. Uh, but the idea appears, and uh, it might or it might not work. I can check it afterwards. Uh, but there's a, there seems to me that there's a commonality there between where ideas come from when, when existing ideas don't work uh, and uh, the, the sorts of things that, that can happen uh, when people... Um, have mystical states uh, and the mind goes quiet and then maybe new ideas arise. Hmm. I think the only other thing I would add to that is just the design process. So like in design thinking, mm -hmm. you mind through divergent thinking and convergent thinking and you go kind of back and forth. And so mm -hmm. I immerse in a topic and, um, you know, let your mind go as divergent as possible. And then mm -hmm. you go and you define what's the problem that we want to, you know, try to solve here. But basically, mm. all of that is trying to build you up into this other explosion of divergent thinking, which is the ideation phase. Mm. So the time mm. you get ideation, you just have ideas kind of popping all over the place. Mm. I mean, I think that, that's the way I interpret that is that you're trying to use this thing called human intuition, but you're trying to load it so with so much that it's well-informed intuition that you're not just working off heuristics but yeah. you're working off kind of a data set and, you know, exploratory thinking and then defining, and then now we're going to, you know, let things kind of go wild. Mm -hmm. I, I think those things that you're talking about would be very dependent on, on the culture of a school. So, I, I mean, I can say mm -hmm. like in the lab, mm -hmm. I was working very big, very kind of corporate feeling, mm -hmm. uh, 18 students. Uh, and then the school that we're working for now, but we can't leave Colombia yet because we're still in quarantine here. Uh, no. We'll be working in, in Sudan in Khartoum. Um, and it's a very small school. And they, I mean, we already have this incredible feeling of like, it's okay to say something stupid in faculty meetings. It's okay mm -hmm. to not answer things. The director is making himself very vulnerable in front of the group to mm -hmm. invite that from them. So I think that, you know, I'm, sure, I'm not sure if you heard Brene Brown, but she talks about this like importance no. of leaders mm -hmm. being vulnerable. And leaders and teachers that if you show your vulnerability, then people are much more likely to do what you're saying of um, to take the chance and to say the, you know, maybe not complete thought or whatever. I would have, I would I would agree with you that the if you have a school in which this principal director is is uh, uh, happy to express vulnerabilities, that that'll that'll permeate right through. Uh, and I'd, I'd also hope that the the the, the excellent projects that you mentioned. Uh, can filter down to, to, to other kids. You know, sometimes the kids who are involved in projects like that and the teachers are uh, maybe um, 
in, in, in better schools. And it seems to me that there are lots of schools that are having difficulties and the, 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 the need is to have more open uh, approaches uh, for kids in schools that are having difficulties. Uh, and not, not just in, in front of me, but someone responded to your article, Constructing Constructivism, with that critique that, you know, questioning, is constructivism just something marketed to wealthy people? Um, whereas the, you know, less fortunate kids that go to rougher schools, they mm. may not see this kind of education, or they, or they may. I mean, I actually talked mm. to a lot of teachers, and there is some incredible work being done there, too. However, I think you're right. It is the affluent school that very often has the um, the teachers and the culture and the means to explore this kind of thinking. Yeah. Well, there was one one uh, one article I wrote uh, with with Deirdre Butler on. I think Wonder was in the title, um, and it was it was done in a, a school that was in a, a difficult area, um, and uh, they had kids that were having all sorts of problems. And there was one kid uh, who was having particular problems, but he, he, he was intrigued by a building site uh, in, in the area. And he was intrigued by these huge big cranes that seemed to be, you know, he couldn't figure out how they balanced and so on. And he started making Lego cranes. And uh, he it turned out to have a sort of a natural skill in, in making uh, structures that didn't fall apart. The other kids were building structures that were falling apart all the time. And he'd figured out a way how to build structures that's, that stayed put and, and didn't fall apart. And, and he, he suddenly, the other kids were coming to ask him uh, how, to, how to do it and asking him for advice on their structures. And from, from a kid who found, no, found all sorts of reasons not to come to school, Suddenly, he was coming to school, and he had a he had a role to play, and and it it, it changed him. Mm. So that was that was an example of a school that was in difficulty. This again, this was Lego Mindstorms, but but um, uh, it, it it worked well for that kid. Yeah, I have not worked directly with Lego Mindstorms, although I am familiar with it. Um, mainly, we I've worked with more either upper stuff like Arduino, mm -hmm. um, the microcontrollers. Mm -hmm. Or the lower stuff, the kids mm -hmm. with batch projects and stuff too. Yeah, yeah. I, I have been in labs where you kind of, I mean, my first introduction to this kind of maker stuff in school was in a Lego Mindstorms mm -hmm. lab at school. And it, it's, it is pretty amazing what goes on in those spaces. Mm -hmm. um, I can't imagine how that wouldn't be successful, at least with some of your um, group of kids, whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this would be a good stopping point because I've kept you over the hour that uh, I had planned. Um, thank you for the epiphanies. And uh, no, and thank you for this article. I mean, I'm going to read through this again just because uh, it's not something you often get in education literature, the construct constructivism and mystical yeah. experience. Yeah. Now you have, um, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned it or not, but you do have a Google site where your research is posted. Is that correct? I do. Yeah, I use Google Sites, uh, the Hugh Gash webpage. Uh, okay. Uh, and it's also on the Dublin City. There's a there's a link to it on my um, uh, Hugh Gash um, page within Human Development in um, in Dublin City University. Okay, uh, I'll post that in the notes here. Just if anybody wants to run down your research, um, it it is a. I mean, what I got to know, it looks like a really cool body of work to, to go deeper into. 
Well, thanks. It's 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 spotty. It goes it goes all over the place. But um, uh, that, I don't think they allow people to do that anymore. I think now you have to have your research agenda all approved ahead of time. Yes. They, yes. I, they I, I escaped that. I, I was I was hired uh, way back when when there wasn't an awful lot of research happening, and I was sort of encouraged to to do my thing and it didn't really matter whether I had funding as long as I did something. So I usually found something interesting to do and that's that's the way I went. Yeah. For people yeah. interested in chasing this line of radical constructivism, is there anybody um, that is impressing you right now? Like who should we go look up? Uh, well, I'd encourage people to look at, at, at the, the, uh, the journal Constructivist Foundations. Um, and there, 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 there are all sorts of interesting things in there. Uh, there's also uh, people like Paul Cobb who um, uh, worked at the University of Georgia. That's where he did his PhD. Uh, and they're in, they're in they're in in maths. Um, but uh, no, I think the simple thing to do would be to point people towards constructivist foundations and and have them um, have them look through uh, different issues. Uh, it's on the web. It's it's uh, it's free, and any any institutional affiliations are most 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 welcome. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. I think you're allowed to download three articles a day, but the articles are beefy, and there are multiple people in each one, so yeah. there's plenty to get through there. Or you can donate and have unlimited access there, and yeah. it hasn't been. I mean, it's only been going for a few years. It's been uh, it's it's been Ernst, Ernst von Glasersfeld was involved in 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 its initial startup. Oh, uh, uh, so I'm not I can't actually remember when it started. Uh, I started uh, writing um, with them quite a lot in about uh, when I retired, uh, and I continued. I'm on the board and I can continue supporting them and I'm hoping people will read it. Yeah. <laughs> It's been a pleasure, Chris. Thank you very much. Yeah. No, thank you. I'll send you uh, here. I'm going to stop recording here just a second to stay online just for a second.